0: welcome everybody thank you to um all those who are listening and we'll see the recording for taking time to join us with our spark crowdcast and i'm peter lawson jones uh, one of the co-hosts and my partner in crime david udelps say hi to the
1: people hello everybody and welcome to tonight's show especially to all those folks from colorado
0: and there's a special reason why we have a national following uh, this evening, because we have somebody who's certainly worthy of it. Our guest this evening uh, is simply a dynamic force of nature. And if you were a baseball player, and I think you can appreciate that as a baseball coach, I used to do some baseball coaching, played the game. She would be what we call a five-tool player. That's somebody who can can do it all. Uh, she's an extraordinary and gifted visual artist. She's an author. Uh, She is a wellness design pioneer, a true thought leader, a friend of mine for uh, probably a couple of decades at this point. So it's just my absolute pleasure and privilege to present uh, Susie Frazier. Susie, how are you this evening?
2: Hi guys, this is so funny because um, 35 years ago, I was more known as a softball player. I was an all-state shortstop in Colorado
0: for a couple years.
2: So yeah, your baseball analogies are falling square right on me. I (laughs) feel you.
0: I did have to explain the five-tool player concept to you. No, no,
2: not at all. Thanks, And and,
1: and it's even more coincidental than that because. Susie and I were at the same school district at that time.
2: That's right. Uh,
1: Ironically. Uh, they, they were not
0: students together. Susie is clearly decidedly a lot younger than both you and I did. <laughs> but you work at the same school district. You were sharing the same geographical space for a, a period of time.
1: And right. you know, we were We were at the same middle school. I was working at Susie's middle school. That's right. Small so world amazing. stuff. It's well, that so was—I cool. don't know
0: what that was in the water out in that uh, that particular city, but certainly some great people were cultivated there. Uh, and, and matter of fact, Susie, why don't you start off by kind of sharing? I think the the term these days is the origin story. Uh, uh, I, I believe you were born in California. Tell us a little bit about that. How you found your way to California? How you ended up in Cleveland? Let us yeah. know what you were like as a, as a kid and as a teen.
2: Well, you know, it's a it's a story of having moved quite a bit, and you know, I I did the math the other day. I think I've moved about seventeen times since I was born. Um, and you know, that's kind of a lot when you count all the college and everything. But I, yeah, I was born and raised in um, Los Angeles until I was about seven. My parents lived um, in Marina Del Rey, and then oh. I moved with my mother and. Um, I had a stepdad. We lived in in Scottsdale, Arizona for about four years. And that was back in the day when Camelback Mountain, you know, was it. And there was nothing but desert. Right. So now it's quite a different place. But um, and then in 1980, I came to Denver where she my mother grew up and her parents and grandparents were. So um, it was sort of this run in, you know, the Southwest and all of this exposure to beaches and mountains and deserts. And so it was a lot of time playing outside, a lot of uh, creative, you know, exploratory things that kids do. And uh, once I finished high school at Cherry Creek and went to college in Boulder, uh, it became clear to me that I felt you know, a strong urge to go into design, although my degree was in communication. So probably I think some folks wanted me to go to TV and um, I did end up doing a TV show uh, here in Cleveland, which I actually won an Emmy there. That night we won an Emmy, Carl Monday won his 50th Emmy that same night. So for those of you in Cleveland who know Carl Monday, holy moly, what a, what a strange thing that was. But yeah, so, you know, as an artist, I started in various other mediums, but I'd always been fascinated by, you know, the kinds of things that come from the earth. So my first material that I played with was uh, when I moved to Cleveland. uh, Right after graduating, I fell in love with a man who was from Strongsville, Ohio, and chose to move out here and start my life. And I became fascinated with all of the roof uh, slates that were on these century homes out here that were, you know, aged patina, really beautiful. And a lot of them had fallen off in my neighborhood at the time I was in Ohio city. And so a lot of developers were re-roofing homes. So I started by taking those roofing slates and cutting them up with a wet saw and building all different types of wood substrates in the form of home accessories, like frames and clocks and benches and mirrors. And then I would do, a mosaic of those slates, uh, cut up and, uh, you know, grout between them and everything. And I kind of just started a whole product line with this very earthy kind of vibe. So I called it earth minded art, which is my LLC that I still run today. And I ran that for probably several years. I was selling those items coast to coast in different, uh, boutique stores and catalog companies, um, did a bunch of trade shows and things, And then we're, you know, a lot of artists get their start at the pop-up markets and the festivals, stuff like that. But it wasn't until I had three children and kind of had to veer off and become a mom for a while and realized that I needed to get out of that medium. It was um, not healthy for me. I was getting, you know, dust on my skin and it was going into my body and I was coming home with very severe headaches and just not well and I think it was like free radical damage in my blood, actually. So it was a pretty serious cause for pause. And uh, then years later, I sort of shifted into more botanical items rather than geological items uh, that piqued my interest. And so I've moved through several mediums. I, I used to collect organic matter. I still do it occasionally where I'm twigs or leaves, grass, and I'm layering them in encaustic in wax, heated wax with a gun, you know, a heat gun, where you kind of build up these layers and infused um, segments. And then it hardens, it becomes very archival, and it's really ethereal looking and, and organic. So that's what I did for many years in my company. And uh, then one day I decided that it was important for me to have a retail showroom a studio where I could work outside. It was not easy to have appointments at my kitchen table, right, with kids running around. So um, I went to a building owner in Cleveland that many people know named Dan Bush. I didn't know him at the time, but he owned a property called 78th Street Studios. And it had only been about five years or so that it had been kind of up and running. It was kind of an underground thing at the time. And when I was lucky enough to get a studio there, There was about seven of us in the building and it's really grown over the years now. There's over 60 people in four floors and it's 170,000 square feet of completely built out studios and galleries. So it's pretty incredible. And then uh, it was quite a journey to, you know, start to do retail products and not just my artwork. And so I became really kind of connected to my my first job in denver i worked at a store uh down on um in Inglewood, well in greenwood village called paperwares and so i kind of took a lot of my retail first job experience and applied it to this retail environment that i was creating um but it really wasn't until even several years later like five years after that that sort of a lot of my world kind of changed dramatically
0: and we're and we're gonna we're gonna get into this i am just curious because your approach to art uh your artistic style
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's so unique i mean did you have role models uh that were also working with very similar kinds of materials or did you kind of come about to this sui generous uh, on your own uh, you know as, as a result of an epiphany how Tell us how you no, it.
2: it was, it was a combo of a couple things, right? So, you know, you go through crisis of any kind and it forces you to stop what you're doing. So the crisis at that time was the stonework was causing me to be sick. So I had to stop. And from that point is when I just went on walks in the woods to clear my head, try to feel better, eat really high antioxidant foods. And uh when I started to play with the things I saw, I was just curious about nature and just kind of went off path, started to notice there was a lot more leaves on the ground and twigs and things that you don't necessarily see in Colorado. Um, You know, the forests of, of Northeast Ohio are just something spectacular. And so I started to become a student of, you know, the living world and collected a lot of the cast off materials and just started to play with them. And my my good friend at the time, I was very very close for many years. I still am close with her, um, but I don't I don't see her as much. Is uh, Lissa Bachrath, who was married to Mark Shapiro at the time. He was the uh, then he was the assistant GM to the Cleveland Indians, and Lissa had an amazing gallery and is a fantastic artist in her own right. But she her gallery was in a part of Cleveland that um, has gone through its own sort of gentrification as well, Little Italy. And she decided to give me a chance and host a a solo show of my work. And I, at the time, was just sort of treating those materials like collage, you know, layering them over each other and just playing with them in a way that was limited knowledge of the, you know, different mediums that were available. And we did a really great, you know, show, but then she later pulled me aside and said, you know, I mean, she went to CIA, Cleveland Institute of Art, and she said, you know, I really think you need to start looking into encaustic wax. And, you know, she's like, who's your, who are your sort of icons that you love and admire their work? And I said, well, Andy Goldsworthy, for sure. You know, he's, he's one of the great eco artists of our time, but his work is outside. He'll take fallen materials and then he weaves them or stitches them or does something incredible with them together in the natural world and then takes extraordinary photos of them. And, you know, we watch them all break down over time. And, you know, he's world renowned. I always said I wanted to do what Andy was doing, but I want to bring that inside so people could live with it in their homes. So that's kind of how it started. And I'm
1: curious, Susie, could you help uh, kind of give us a context? Where uh, do you do your work? Where would it be displayed? What sorts of venues? Would your art? Because I know you do some public buildings, private homes, but maybe share with the audience mm-hmm. where well, are what these?
2: happened in about you know in 2015 I started to evolve quite a bit with the actual medium, what I was designing, what I was making, and uh, I had a good piece of advice or feedback from uh, Jill Snyder, who was then the uh, executive director of MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Cleveland. And um, she had seen my work, and she said, "Susie, this is interesting. I want to see what happens when you go outside of the frame." And it just blew my mind for a hot minute that she's right. We don't need to contain nature this way, and the, and the patterns that I'm playing with. I would painstakingly, you know, lay out these twigs or different fragments of earth in you know similar patterns as I'd see, you know, fallen on on my walks. But I was trying to keep it all in this neat little box, whether it was a rectangle or square. And um, it hit me that I could go larger if I just kind of thought outside of the actual materials that I was collecting. So I started to play around on the computer a lot. You know, over the years, um, I've had to learn about 30 different software programs. So it was sort of one more thing to learn. But I got into Adobe Illustrator and I started to, at the time, my ex-husband bought me a bamboo tablet. And I was literally using a stylus pen and drawing shapes on this tablet. And then it was literally, you know, in real time on my screen, on my computer. And I could create these pattern designs that actually had a path that could be cut out. So I would experiment, essentially, with those, those you know, motifs. And I would send them to, uh, you know, my friends that are working with you know cnc routers or plasma cutters in the metal industry and they taught me that i could actually apply my ideas into different materials and now we can do you know an all-day install with these motifs that are just sort of floating across the wall in these very organic but repeating designs and now i was able to start to make contact with hotels and hospitals and different types of corporate offices who needed large walls you know with artwork on them so it's been quite a uh, a journey and honestly you know you mentioned our friends michelangelo's in uh they have a restaurant in cleveland and one in big sky montana um but i've been lucky enough to do work for you know, hotels in other cities, um, you know, and, and go there and install them with my installation team. Um, And, you know, what's interesting about the things that I've learned over the years was that, you know, there was a crisis happening during that period that I wasn't aware of. Okay, so like, you can have a successful what seems like a successful career, things are starting to finally migrate to bigger projects or new opportunities. But inside what was happening to me was a shift in my mental capacity. I had three children. There was a lot of stress in our home life. And also with just, you know, my ex-husband was also uh, an entrepreneur and, and a very successful one. So we were both working a lot and it was very, very, um, just go, 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 go. So I think where I found a new lane, and almost a new platform for my, my work, and Peter, you mentioned this book, but uh, was when I started to get honest with myself, um, and got diagnosed and, and saw some, you know, doctors about it that, you know, I was living with generalized anxiety, and also ADHD, all my life, but I didn't know it. And when I you know, looked through a lot of the readings out there and talked with some of the experts about, you know, well, this is what I've been doing in order to manage this, I suppose. I mean, I spend a lot of time in nature. I make a lot of this artwork. And we realized it was a coping mechanism that I had developed my own method of, you know, working with organic matter and then building organic patterns, bringing it into built environments, and then other people... Also, feeling like it's helpful to them, bringing them some calm. So, it turns out there's actually science behind it now. Lots of science. And, and,
0: and as a matter of fact, you you took that lemon, so to speak, of the uh, the mental health challenges that you were facing at the time,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and converted it into both a a book, and also in a in a a kind of new career. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I believe. Make sure I'm pronouncing this right. Biophilic design is that correct? Biophilic. That's right. Design. Right. So tell, I'm sure that most of the listeners, because I certainly wasn't familiar with the concept of biophilic design, but mm-hmm. but tell tell us how you how you found that silver lining in the in the midst of, of these discoveries about things that you had been coping with through yeah. your own way of kind of self medicating, which. In this case, was certainly better than, than alcohol or, or, or some kind of substance. And this is right. a interesting discussion we're having because this is mental health awareness month. Right. The month of the day. And right. so uh,
2: yeah, and I, you know, I dance around that topic so much. I write articles about it and stuff, but sometimes I, you know, I really have to keep a, a, a safe space around it because, you know, when you look at the research that was coming out in God, it was like around 2011, 2010. And I didn't know it existed until I looked backwards and it had already been like six, seven years in the making. Um, A lot of white papers about the idea of biophilia and really what is biophilia. And, you, you know, you started to see these articles about or these stories like people heal faster when they're in hospitals, if they have a view of nature. And so that was really like the first... Institutional kind of setting where they could monitor and they have ways of measuring the outcomes um, between patients and similar uh, cases and whatnot. But
0: and, and uh, I guess biophilia is the love of biology or the love of of that, which is in nature. Is that well, That's biophilia?
2: what I was getting at? Yeah, because what happens when a person is in those rooms looking at nature or a person is walking down the street or in their backyard? you can have a biophilic moment and all it is, is a internal connection, an intimate connection with another living thing in the natural world. So it can be mostly with plants and trees, but also with other living creatures like animals. So uh, when we talk about biophilic design, what what it's referring to is design elements in the built environment that foster that connection with living things. And what we're seeing in the industry now, uh, because there's a whole consortium of global leaders uh, that started what is called, you know, the Well-Building Institute, they basically took all of this data and this research and developed something called the Well-Building Standard. And that standard is, you know, kind of born out of the whole green building and LEED standards, right? LEED certification. And that focuses on just the structures and how it's sustainably built or low carbon footprint. But well building focuses on the people inside and what kinds of ways their body and mind and psyche is reacting to the design elements inside. So biophilia is a huge... There's several sections that talk about ways that designers and architects can integrate those biophilic moments throughout any kind of live workspace that you can imagine. And it allows for people to have reduced levels of anxiety, a lot more sense of calm. People report having a greater enjoyment when they go to those environments or go to work or go to that hotel So it's a really big deal. And now it's becoming so important to even destinations like spas and hotels that they are all choosing to design their environments. Even if they're not necessarily built as a wellness property, they're just doing it anyway because they know that even if people aren't conscious of why they feel better, they actually enjoy their experience more by being exposed to those types of things and that's everything from not just live plants and views of the outside or a really incredible landscape plan that brings the outside in it's also patterns from nature that are embedded in artwork on the walls or even with carpet design Um, it could be you know wallpaper or wall features it could be wayfinding systems that are indicative of the organic forms you would see in the natural world.
1: And I did uh, post, um, excuse me, your, uh, your uh, website, because people have to go look at this stuff.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Actually, my Instagram <laughs> page has, um, my Instagram account has probably <clears throat> a lot more of the day-to-day things and even I'm doing more reels now where I'm showing people little things you can do yourself in your own home that help you. So this is why I wrote my book. You know, it was sort of the coming out of my own sort of darkness, like, wow, I, you know, this is why I have these impulsive behaviors and this is why I get easily distracted. And this is also why I'm like kind of nervous. Like my nickname in college was was frazzled (laughs) frage. If you can imagine this. Frazzled Frage, like for Fraser, you know, frazzled being like the con- that constant behavioral trait, and that that's not something I want to be as my that that I'm known for, right? So, when I wrote the book, it was a way to identify this as something I live with, identify this whole movement that's coming out that the public really still general public doesn't know about. All of us in the industry are aware of things like that are happening in this field, but. Most people still don't know how they can take care of it on their own. And so then I kind of shifted and said, let's turn this into a superpower. Like if you have a sensitive brain like I do with ADHD, you're already noticing little details of things like the bright lights in the restaurant or the sounds that are grinding on you as you're listening to this thing going on over here and another something over here. So, you know, that's one aspect of it. It's also spatial kind of connection and relation. So, you know, I, I tend to go to properties now sometimes, and I, it's like somebody who used to, you know, work in the service industry for anybody who's ever like bartended or waiting. You can hardly ever go to a restaurant without like, without critique. You know, your own table, right? It's just in you now. So I don't, um, I kind of think of it as like a canary in a coal mine. I, I go to places and have a sense of whether I feel relaxed, whether I feel tense what is the color in the room making me feel like is there enough natural light do i like the smell is there music playing and is it music that's just you know somebody's you know really just haphazardly throwing something on like background noise or is it thoughtful to induce a certain type of a vibe that you're trying to elicit Very
1: very comprehensive approach you're taking into account all this stuff it's amazing yeah,
0: and, I and mean, you've
2: re-
1: and you've referenced your book, "Designing Wellness," just so everybody knows,
0: "Designing Wellness," correct?
2: Designing for Wellness, yes, Designing for yes, wellness. Okay. yes. It's a hardcover. It's super easy read, though. It's, uh, boy, you can get it on Amazon or on my website. But it's it's meant to be one of those books that you just kind of get some spiritual and some inspirational wisdom, and then you get visuals that are really mesmerizing. You could like kind of look at it at any you don't have to read cover to cover but it's it's really um it's meant to be that lowest common thread that all humans sort of sense and know about where and why we want our lives to feel easeful and how we do it but we kind of live in a western society that you know fosters so much hustle culture and and ambition and drive and So yeah, I'm, I'm actually, you know, we talked about this last, you know, when we met, but I broke my ankle, as you guys remember in September and, uh, talk about other obstacles. Right. And, you know, everybody goes through various things in life, but this particular thing stopped me on my back. I was laid up for about eight to 12 weeks. Couldn't do anything. Couldn't go into my gallery. Couldn't follow up on projects. Everything stopped. And what a gift from the universe, right? When you when you have these things, it seems like the world is crashing in and everything is awful. But um, what it did was it allowed me to actually reassess how I've been pushing, pushing, pushing so hard and, you know, the long days and the ways that I just, you know, ambitiously go after things. And it, it allowed me to take a step back, be a little bit more of a witness to my own life and why I do make certain choices. And now I'm I'm also advocating a little bit more for the slowdown and, and more time in nature, more time to just ease into where does my body feel today? How do I emotionally feel today? What's the best use of my time today? Should I actually do that call or should I do it tomorrow when I'm feeling better? You know, stuff like that, and those are those are all the self care things that really need to be talked about with mental health, in addition to just how we design our spaces. But you know,
1: and my my career is in mental health, and that's right. slow that slowing down aspect is so important. Just slow down. The Navy SEALs, their mantra. They have a mantra that goes: slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And there's such a rush, 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 rush. And people can easily, more easily than you might think, slow down just by slowing down the breathing, Mm -hmm. slowing down the talking, just chilling out. Uh, One thing I've discovered, if you slow down one part of yourself, the rest of you will follow. Uh, So breathing, talking, movement. You might notice that I'm slowing down my talking right now. And some of you listeners may notice that you're slowing down (laughs) as you're listening to me. It's almost like it's contagious. But But it's so
2: hard. You know, you guys know, I mean, your lives, you juggle a lot. Everybody does. I think my mother, my mother told me many, many years in a row, you just need to slow down, Susie. I mean, like, I can't tell you how many times I heard that. So you know, what you're speaking, David, is complete like golden nugget truth. Um, But a lot of times it comes for people to that. Aha. Oh, yeah, I get it now. Only after you've had an incident that forces you, you know, to do that.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned something interesting before. You mentioned your over focus on external things. You were Mm -hmm. noticing little details with I think you mentioned ADHD, but how about that—that that inside stuff that maybe you were paying too much attention to? Could you talk about yeah. that a little more?
2: Um, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm actually uh, working a little bit on that now for myself, and uh, I'm learning to sort of understand the difference between, you know, my who's the spirit, who's the soul inside of me versus who's the. The jabbering monkey mind and a lot monkey of times Ryan. we you know you hear these things in your mind about what you know the, the self-talk whatever it may be and you sort of think that's your inner self and and then you kind of categorize it as that and you you know maybe you attribute it to an intuition but i really do believe there's a difference between you know because the mind is like You know, the old saying goes, you know, the mind is a terrible master. It's better as a student. You know what I mean? And if we're allowing our minds to take over, um, you can see how it all of a sudden becomes, you know, a neurosis. It becomes something that now has way too much power. So uh, what I do now is I'm working on how to give myself enough space in the morning um whether it's you know drinking tea and sitting looking at my yard or meditating um sometimes i'll force myself into moments where i'm you know i'll do some kind of meditative chant so that i literally have no space for other things to come in and you know you'll watch the thoughts go by right and there's all kinds of things about what you need to do that day or what you want to you know accomplish and Or that thing that so and so said to you. But um, ultimately, I think there's a point where we've just become so con, so we've given too much emphasis on the psychology of the mind in our culture. And I don't know that we're giving ourselves enough attention to the spirit and the inner soul that kind of, you know, has a much more easeful space and place.
1: The mind is very random not very useful sometimes and we're listening to it because it's our own mind a very interesting experiment is to have somebody write down your thoughts give it to somebody and have them read them to you and you're looking at them like that sounds crazy but when we're thinking it to ourselves we're listening all the way because it's our mind our monkey mind yeah do you know how many words go through the human mind in the course of a minute
2: Oh my God, it's gotta be a ton.
1: Four thousand words. Don't ask me how they determine that. I have no idea, but four thousand words, that's a lot to get tangled up in.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Some,
1: it, some some of it's yeah. useless. Connecting to your spirit, connecting to what's really important.
2: Yeah.
1: Is what's critical. And that you've you've identified it and stated it beautifully. Well, job thanks
2: i don't know i mean sometimes i'll i'll sit in a moment where i'm kind of in a headspace, you know where i feel like i'm kind of out of body and i'll have some incredible inspiration and then i'll be like oh i gotta write that down right you know i gotta remember that or do that and so i don't know if it's a bad thing that you can kind of come in and out right it's probably more like making sure that we don't give it just too much airtime.
0: yeah because You know what you're talking about you are obviously extremely successful very busy uh probably a type a personality uh, (laughs) like probably all three of us are and so that's a that's a challenge that's a very difficult transition to make to slow yourself down um because i'll you know personally if i'm not doing something that i feel is constructive i feel a sense of guilt
2: Oh I'm yeah,
0: wasting Same. time and wow. the older you get, you have less of that. And I would dare say in some respects, I'm probably more driven today. Uh, I've always been fairly driven, but yeah, I've been more sick. driven today because I know there's less time remaining unless I live to 140, uh, which <laughs> is kind of unlikely. So yeah. uh, so it, it's an, so how do you balance that out? Because you, in some respects, you need an edge to continue to be your best self, to excel, to build a legacy, um, to stay relevant. Dave and I were talking about this just a, a couple of days ago. Dave had a milestone birthday last uh, week or so. and We celebrated. Yes, he, he finally turned 30. Absolutely.
2: Yay, Dave. Yeah, I'm
1: 30. Yeah, I'm
0: 30. <clears throat> <laughs> so, so how do you know that that's a challenge in and of itself i mean yeah, yeah i can slow myself down but i'd probably feel a degree of guilt in doing so so how do you merge yeah, I, do. How, how I, do you- I
2: really struggle with that i'm gonna totally jump right on that and and take this thing by you know head on um i am actively right now i have had to force myself um just for health reasons uh, mental health reasons and physical health reasons to, uh, just do radical release of all of those, you know, self-shame, uh, guilt for being unproductive. Um, you know, I, I literally talk about it almost at the end of every day to my partner. He comes home and I, he comes over and I'm explaining it to him. Like, okay, I know that I have done all the meditating, I've journaled, I've walked in my yard, whatever. And I still feel like I'm, I should be, you know, at work and whatever. Um, Honestly, you guys, I think that our culture is plagued with this, you know, its own kind of dis-ease in that we don't know how to be in, you know, with ourselves without constantly doing something. So for me, it's been an epic turn. I mean, I'm literally looking at, you know, there's consulting work that I had been doing for a while. Um, Earlier this year, I was working on a 50-story tower in Jersey City where I was helping them shape the vision for you know how this multifamily property is going to be constructed. And as the project has been on pause, I thought, you know, this is a really important opportunity. I don't know if I'm gonna get it again. But uh, you know, in the, in the juncture between chapters of my story, this has turned out to be an exact time where I can literally wake up and not have to go into a rush state to anything. And um, I have a tremendous amount of guilt over it. So I'm right now actively working on, wow, where does that guilt come from? Who is imposing that? Where did i learn that why is that sort of my natural state of thinking is it necessary do i need it anymore um does it define me how who am i without that i mean these are a lot of like really introspective questions but um it's allowing for sort of inner joy to percolate a little bit once i can set that aside for a half minute and you kind of have to be surrounded by people who are also willing to let you do that. I mean, also embrace it or wanting to embrace it. You know, it's. Uh, I tried a lot of years to do some kinds of versions of slowdown, and found that just even as a mother, my peer groups, you know, it's like today's parenting style alone is is a huge problem. You know, we're dealing with. This urgency to micromanage every aspect of our children's lives, which leaves no space for anybody to chill out, including the children, because there's so much organizing and meeting planning and running people around and whatever. We don't just let things unfold.
1: And kids so, hate that. I might add. I can tell yeah. you that, that, Mike, you know, uh, uh, Jack from Colorado, uh, this is a good place to add. Uh, he put in a question. I don't know if you saw it.
2: I didn't, Jack.
1: Uh and jack oh, okay. if you if jack you better be good or i'll tell the story about the time you fell off your kitchen counter uh but that's another story for another time i but, see
2: that question that's a good question yeah he wants to know if if uh this kind of topic intersects directly with what our kids are enduring stress-wise and, and yeah my kids, it. i mean um i can tell you my own children have had uh experiences with you know in school where you know they're older now, but they're you know where there's a they're high-performing schools, right? College-prep high schools and you know things like that where the expectations are high, and not just from parents, but because those administrators at the schools are really working hard to make sure they deliver value for those expensive tuition bills, right? So everybody's pushing, pushing. Um, I think they feel pressure in a lot of ways, but. Where I see them shining is um, they've carved out ways and spaces that the adults didn't get to plan or coordinate in order to find that you know inner peace for themselves. So, um, you know, my my middle, who is in college now in New York, she tells me of things that they do with, you know, some of the friend things that they do. And it's, a lot of it is freedom-based. I hate to say it, but it's like being able to get on, you know, the train and go explore uh, the city in the afternoon with their friends. You know, I, I remember teaching my kids, you know, as soon as they could figure out how to ride bikes and they were about nine, you know, I encouraged my son to get his friends and go drive a mile away and, you know, go get to the speedway and buy something for themselves, you know, a little Mm -hmm. soda or something. And, you know, we, we sort of stifle them in some, you know, cultures in some neighborhoods where it's like, (gasps) you wouldn't let your children ride their bikes all the way over there and do that. Would you like, you know, like this is appalling that we are giving them opportunities to live in the earth and the world. Like we all are, but without training wheels, without the leash, without the apps that control where we know where they go at all times, you know? So I, you know, don't espouse, I don't believe in any of that and it's not necessarily, um, it's not easy to go against the grain. That's all I can say about that.
1: Yeah, your neighbors might call the police on you because you let your kid ride his bike by himself, right?
2: Well, I mean, nothing that severe. I think it takes oh, village, I, right? But I, you can know, tell look, you,
1: I can tell you stories about that. People that, oh, that's you're being negligent and that yeah. kind of thing. That it, It's going on. There was a whole book written about yeah. that. Yeah, well, and sorry to-
2: social. I think social media is you know, one of those things, this is why I'm so strongly advocating for people to spend more time in nature and just have nature in their homes, because it's super easy to jump to this when you are finding a gap in your, you know, in your head, there's nothing to do. Oh, I'll pick up my phone and I'll doom scroll forever. You know, it's really uh, the kind of thing that you know disconnects you from the living world so biophilia as a practice is one of my core values you know as a human it's that i i mean i have plants everywhere in my room now i couldn't keep a plant alive when i was you know living with all my kids and we were i was raising them with my ex-husband you know it was like there was no space and time and energy to even you know put love on them and water them and care for them but If you learn to do simple things like that, you know, you you start to observe the daily changes of this living creature. And um, I don't know if you guys have, have you seen any of these documentaries about, you know, how trees are actually all connected through the fungal network underground and this is how they communicate? Yeah, it's an extraordinary new thing that has sort of become part of science now. We've really finally figured it out why Um, You know, even trees that aren't even the same species, they share nutrients and they are, you know, very aware. There's even um, some studies that have been, you know, how plants have a response and reaction to what, you know, you even say to them and that, you know, the difference between how a plant thrives. And, and, you know, under those conditions, if you're saying something negative or ignoring them completely versus the plants that are and also, you know, mistreating them um, versus those that, you know, there's a friendly exchange and there's touch and, you know, because there's energy between these things. So, so I'm the, not...
0: the discovery that um, that plants are more sentient creatures themselves, uh, mm-hmm. a certain level of consciousness. Yeah. You know, what? What do we? Let, let me pose this. For much of, uh, for 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 most of humankind, uh, too large a share is almost persistently and consistently in survival mode, yeah. and for them, it is a, a a bit of a of a luxury perhaps to have time to slow down, because. Their basic survival needs, the fundamentals, mm. how, you know, shelter, clothing, uh, yeah. food. Uh, has there been, I'm just curious as to whether or not there's been anything that's been written or discussed and how to, even in the midst of the lives of those who are again surviving day to day, always on the edge to To get them to perhaps slow down,
2: mm-hmm. uh, to
0: find some measure of relaxation and solace.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, the three well, of us are probably in a position where we can't afford to, we can afford to slow down because our creature needs are met.
2: What yeah. about those
0: for whom that's a greater challenge?
2: You know, my first uh reaction to that commentary and you know and it's it's a valid point right because um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs are getting met for those of us that feel like you know we have a roof over our heads we have food on the table and even right livelihood that we feel like we can enjoy um but I, i do know this that when you look at cultures that are indigenous and maybe ancient to degree in terms of having a long history longer than our longer than America. And you look at regardless of socioeconomic class of people, there are lots of scientific kind of references to the fact that, you know, ancient humans, even if they were struggling with, you know, how to the flight or, or fight response from saber toothed tigers being, you know, in their environment that they had to be aware of, Um, because they were already naturally integrated into a landscape and the daily gathering of, of just berries and foods, even though it was exhausting and it was part of how they survived every day, those things by being, being a creature of the world, you know, and, and integrating themselves they were already outside they were already knowing and, and very knowledgeable of certain uh, plant species in their areas even today in you know some of these other parts of the world there's there's a, a different level of connection to the natural world than what we experience especially in our urban centers in our cities and so you know it is, super important that we understand where and how we can bring a little bit of that naturalness to an urban concrete experience right So um, I find that even folks that you know live in neighborhoods where there is no public park and there is no um, you know access to a metro parks where they can go hiking, it is enough. To be able to just sit anywhere next to vines growing on the side of the building, right? I can tell you that there's been countless times of mine where even you know my office is over in the middle of a warehouse district, if you will, that's near you know the urban center of Cleveland, and um, you know I can walk to a block or two in any direction. And there's nothing but, you know, asphalt and broken concrete and old buildings. But on days where I'm having, you know, a rough time, I literally will go to the vacant lots and, you know, that are chained up and crawl into the fence. (laughs) My friends that know me know I do this a lot. Um, I will find a way, and now I'm sure this is not legal for anybody who's dealing with some private property, but like where those things look overgrown and it's like um, abandoned and seems to be decrepit. I have found some of the most beautiful experiences for myself by seeing just nature finding a way through the crack in the pavement where a building was burned down to the ground. And five years later, these glorious things are growing there without being disturbed. And so sometimes I'll go back there and I, you know, I'll take some of the fallen things or the clippings and I'll bring them into my gallery. And that's the giant centerpiece on one of my display tables. You know, these dried glorious, they look like tumbleweeds to the average person, but um, you know, moments, these are micro moments of life. And I would uh, say to anyone who's feeling like they don't have the basic needs and they're still feeling stressed and whatnot is that, a grounding point for mental health, for, you know, just being a human being in this incarnation on this planet at this time can always be connecting to any other piece of nature, even if it's just a tiny tuft of, you know, a layer of grass running through the sidewalk and seeing the way it grows and how, you know, I'm always fascinated by like, okay, a tree falls, right. And then you have, you know, layers and layers of things that have been squished under it, but then they find their way through and up. And then over time, right. You have extraordinary adaptation. And then what does that teach us about, you know, what's possible for ourselves as, you know, fellow living creatures. It's, it's a metaphor for uh, being able to see what's possible, even if it takes, uh, you know, if it's a slow moving you know, adaptation, slow
0: change. It reminds me of the song, There is a Rose in Spanish Harlem. Um, Yep. You know, I think, Dave, perhaps a takeaway for the two of us when we have our next conversation with one of our classmates, Marcia Fudge, who's the Secretary of Housing and Development, is to find a way to bring biophilic design into public housing and, uh, and tenements and structures like that, so even, so to bring that calming influence in the midst of lives that are often, uh, you know, again, once again, extremely challenged, extremely hectic, where there's very little time to, to breathe or to enjoy, that perhaps incorporating yeah. this biophilic design in those yeah. kind of structures could make a, a, a major, a major difference, major difference. because <laughs> as, as you've said, just very quickly, obviously the uh, LEED certification, that kind of sustainability in buildings has uh, enjoyed great acceptance amongst Mm -hmm. public authorities and private entities in terms of building as they all compete to get the platinum LEED certification. Um, How far, how how long do you think it will be before biophilic design has that same kind of urgency for developers?
2: That's a great question. And I would say that, you know, and keep in mind well building, you know, biophilic design is only sort of one piece of that broader puzzle. There's there's many other things like the systems of air and water and, you know, what does the building have in way of fitness opportunities when it's like, you know, just walkways for people staying active versus, you know, a workout facility. Right. It's everything from the comforts of, you know, what temperature is the space and is there. Are there places that you know are supportive of the mind there's a lot of factors in addition to just the biophilic design elements for well building okay. but um,
0: quick in your book designing for wellness are those other topics tackled in addition beyond the biophilic design
2: no and and i didn't on it sounds like you've
0: got another book coming <laughs>
2: Well, you know, there's still it's what's so great about the the team behind the well-building standard. And it's really like professionals that are all over the world now that are all logging in, choosing to become, you know, a a well um, AP, an accredited professional that knows how to, you know, advise on these issues. Certification. Where it started was with uh, the pilot program began, I believe in 2014, and it started in the institutional area with hospitals and educational center, you know, schools, campuses, things like this. And then it, uh, version two, I believe went into, uh, it got into corporate spaces and other types of public environments like hotels and hospitality. And healthcare settings that weren't necessarily like institutional hospitals. And then just this last, I think it was a year and a half ago, uh, the pilot program for multifamily housing began. So it's literally iterative. And what they do is they keep learning as they go and they then introduce it to a new sector. And at that point, they might add new features um, or new sections. So I believe, since I was reading about it and um, you know studying it, it's you know there's a curriculum that's huge. Um, you know they've added even two other you know focus areas in addition to the ones that I knew. There's seven of them, um, but really where you know by the time it goes to single family homes, right? You know where we can. See the opportunity to buy a a well designed home where it has biophilia in it and other systems that we know are going to be good for our minds and our bodies and our physiology. Um, It's a ways away because it's, you know, there's so much educating. I don't think, I think it'll be in our lifetime for sure. Um, But right now, where you see biophilic design sort of having its big splash is typically in projects where the developers are willing to pay for that as a differentiator. You know, they, they want to throw down to have that kind of wow factor, but also have the underpinnings of, you know, we know what this does. And then therefore that's why people sign up to be in those spaces or those hotels choose to have that architect working on it. Um, I think your idea with Marsha Fudge is like an incredible one. It would have to be, you know, something that is really uh palatable easy doesn't have to be over designed i mean something as simple as hanging planters you know as part of a walkway as you go into the building and if any of the tenants want to have a couple of the pots to plant their own things then they can come in and tend to it if they want but i've always told even the developers i was working with in the new york area i was like you know, we have these gorgeous terraces that we're, we're envisioning and mapping out and even ways we're bringing this stuff inside. But if you could offer, you know, a living garden, if you will, that's in the property where people can tend to it, it, it tends to be the kind of thing that people don't always get to it. So you do need to think about if it's going to be living in some capacity that there's a facilities manager or some type of service company that can come and kind of do the main stuff, but then let tenants jump in when they can, when they're not, you know, dealing with their day-to-day life stuff.
1: It's interesting listening to you describe the evolution and the growth of this movement, because it's very much like what you were talking about with the growth of trees and how they adapt. And there's a, there's an overlap there of how, your field is adapting just like the plants are so right there you go. right and very, I think or, very, very organic
2: yeah thank you that's a good point to mention i should i should i might have to save that idea and share that with others about i mean there's definitely a lot of thought leaders out there um oliver heath is a is an interior designer oliver heath design he's been doing this for a while and um for anyone who's interested in that uh, kind of where it started and who's out there at the forefront of it, I mean, he's one of those people that's even doing workshops on it now. And all of his images on Instagram, you can see how he's been out there out front with the way he designs rooms and spaces. Now, I've been sort of in the periphery in the past where they bring me in, you know, at the end to do artwork that sort of feeds that mission and that goal. But as a, you know, doing a little more consulting. I can kind of go in early and help shape not just the spaces inside, but how do we look at even the outside where, you know, normally it's like, okay, we're going to throw a few, you know, seats out here. We might have, you know, like a plaza for kids to, you know, run around with their pets or whatever, you know, like there's a lot of token things that get thrown at projects, even municipal projects where they're like checking boxes but when they're done in a way that allows for this thinking to kind of come in you realize that you would choose different landscaping then you would choose a pathway that does something else besides just the straight line from a to b you would create moments that are almost like little zen moments as you wander through a neighborhood that allows people to connect with natural you know almost like the organic things that would already be growing there, but in a way that realizes the value of milkweed as it's flowering, cause the butterflies are coming and pollinating. And, you know, these are the the simple little things that the other side of it would be like, we're gonna weed whack that and we're gonna pour concrete over it. And that's where our bench is going, you know? So I just, I like the idea of us taking a little pause as we look at development projects and plans and, thinking about it differently in terms of, you know, people, plants, place, and participation, and and how can all of that be sort of this flow, just an easy flow, and um, most of the time it's segregated and that's the bummer of it. So I would love to see a lot of that change in not just, you know, vertical buildings, but also in the way entire neighborhoods are planned.
0: You're well, okay. I, I, I know you aren't looking for additional work because, as you said, you're trying to create a little time and space, a little woo-saw uh, <laughs> for you. But, but clearly, uh, given your art, ability to articulate the primary principles of biophilia and uh, designing for wellness, uh, wellness design, There is a market for your services and and those of uh, the men and women you're working with uh, in terms of a lot of neighborhood development right now in the city of Cleveland. I'm working on a project, Lee Road and Shaker Heights, where those ideas would be welcome, uh, certainly on the federal level with uh, uh, Mm -hmm. construction, especially of public housing. So, yeah,
2: well, uh, keep in mind, I mean, I'm I'm happy happy to. to
0: I don't think you're going to be able to slow down as much as you would like and, and, you, you
1: know network, you're, 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 network, passion, network need right
0: you're
2: you're you're passionate right now you're
1: your passion for this it's so obvious how passionate you are about that and mm-hmm. and that and thought uh, that, in, that intensity had to have helped you had to have been a huge piece to your getting over those obstacles that you faced that you oh, talked yeah. about earlier oh, uh, and, yeah. and making those important things happen as you are doing that passion. It's not just an interest of yours. You're making it happen.
2: Well, you know, it's sort of like, I, I kind of see it as these are it's, it's, I have to, you know, I do live with, those highs and lows. And, um you know, it's funny, you guys, uh, we think about our lives and how we go along our day. And we we're used to seeing trees and things and birds and squirrels as you m- meander into even just parking lots and neighborhoods. But when I had to be on my back, it was luckily during October, uh, September, October of last year. And I decided that part of the healing, I was I just had to get outside. So I literally had, you know, help, but, you know, we dragged out like a mattress, like layers of blankets. And I just I have this tiny little ledge outside the back of my house. It's like a balcony. And I laid there for hours. I mean, hours staring up at the sky. And pretty soon I got really jazzed about, you know, cloud patterning and what that looks like and all of the ways that birds interact with each other above us. And most of us don't even notice, you know, we see them when they come down and we're at eye level with them, but when they're in the sky, there's just so much going on that we don't even notice. It's amazing. So I kind of think of it as um, maybe it was good training, you know, to just be paying more attention so that if I do have something like an opportunity that comes along, I can infuse that. Um, but I think everyone could be able to be that voice for these things, right?
0: You know, we all we always people are always admonished to stop and smell the roses. And you really have drawn a very vivid and comprehensive picture of precisely all the ways in which we can enjoy the natural world, interact with the natural world and be inspired by it. Uh, you know, I could see the joy in your face, eyes lit up your face illuminated as you were talking about lying on your porch looking up at the stars and the new things that you were seeing that most of us are completely oblivious to
1: being in in the moment is critical when we're in the moment even just totally in the moment and nature does that because it's so engaging yeah the smell the sight the sound And what you're really, you know, talk about smelling the roses and those, it just brings us to this moment, very present. And when we're present, I can remember undergoing a heart procedure 10 years ago and being, you know, you can imagine the intensity before you go through that and just being totally engaged in the moment by staring out the window before they rolled me into that room. Yeah. And just yeah. looking out there and being present was very calming, even under very. very difficult circumstances. Well, and
2: don't you guys think, I mean, that that sort of thinking goes, I mean, people hate going on walks with me. I, I will go on the woods with them and on a trail and then they're still walking. And I'm like, wow, you know, and I've zeroed in on something that, you know, I'll be right there. Hang on. But I really feel that that's the kind of method that we should have even with you know interactions with each other right absolutely you know if if there's a moment that we can carve out that i mean i used to literally be so busy that i thought you know oh hey you know eileen you know down the hall and i'd you know rush in rush out and this was my mo for 25 years Just, you know, I'd have friends over or I'd go to a party or I'd see people, but I was always too busy to really, you know, I'd check in or say hi for a few minutes. But then, you know, I could tell that I was go, go, go. And I think uh, now after everything that's happened and the way that, you know, my body has sort of led me to, you know, these new awarenesses, um, I can't even I don't want to go back to that. I don't. And and if I could find like now when I open up for third Fridays for the art walk, um, you know, I don't stand behind the register anymore. I mean, I I'm gracious, I'm fortunate enough to have my partner do work with me there, but like I can tell you honestly the conversations that happen when you, you know, giving that fullness to any 45 second conversation Um, And people feel heard. I mean, the same goes with my plants and I'm just zoning in with them. It's um, I don't know. I kind of think of it as a little bit of a spiritual thing. And if we are too self-absorbed to be in the world that we're living in, then we've just created a whole different reality that is not even real.
0: I could I could share this. Uh, having been an elected official and therefore yeah. a politician for a quarter century, that when people interact with a public official or a celebrity, whether local or you know, or uh, national, international, there are two types of people. They're the type, there are those individuals with whom they interact, uh, who they can tell the person is looking over that person's shoulder to see who's next, who else oh, is next, right. that they might need to Connect with more important, much more urgently than they need to talk to the person that's right in front of you. And then yep. there are those those uh, celebrities, elected officials, who you might only have a minute or two with them, but you yep. are absolutely convinced during that minute or two that you are the only person that matters to them in the world. And, you have
2: always been like that, Peter. Always.
0: But uh, that's that's kind of you. I, I know pre-
1: that.
0: I appreciate that. But that, but that is a, a critical distinction, and that's being in the moment, that's being present. Uh, and I, you know, my my kids have always asked me. say, said, "Dad, you're a pretty good conversationalist at cocktail parties. How do you do it?" And I, I said, the most important thing is by not being feeling compelled or an urgency to tell my story, but to instead ask the person, a question or two, and yeah. virtually every human being, if you ask a, the right questions, they will say something that mm-hmm. will create an extraordinary conversation that you weren't expecting because everybody has an interesting story. It's just well, a matter of getting them to tell it.
2: Yeah. I, yeah. I know
0: boring human beings because everybody's had something happen to them in their lives. That's mm-hmm. uh, idiosyncratic. That's pe- pe- uh, uh, peculiar to them. And that's absolutely fascinating. So I it's tell my,
1: listening, I, I tell my clients that right now, we're, we're talking about being in the moment. I say right now, in this moment, in my life, you are the most important person, the most important thing in the world.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I need to give my undivided attention. Uh, another psychologist described it as exquisite awareness.
2: Oh, I like that word that phrase.
1: Exquisite awareness. You're totally focused. That's why eye contact is so important.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, here's one thing that I, I wondered, you know, I, I kind of, I don't know, I guess I got on a soapbox about it for a while. And now I just, I guess I just try to do it and then hope that they see, but you know, our children um, collectively, our children, you know, societies watching, you know, these children are, witnessing um, the generations of us that are older. And they're not necessarily seeing, you know, in some cases, of course, there's always the exceptions. But I know the way I had lived for so long before um, was that they just never got to see their their parents, or at least, you know, in a relaxed state where there's, you know, kicking up, Feet on the, you know, laying around, reading a book, having a glass of wine outside, where you're not hosting something with a lot of people, but you're you are just zoning. And um, you know, I I think if we could do anything for our children, the next generation of people, we can show them what life looks like without this in our hands. Yeah. And you know give them portals, moments of opportunity to experience real connection, connection. and whatever that is, whether it's with a person, whether it's with nature, whether it's just with themselves. Whether it's with a piece of them. art. Yeah, right. Or right. Something that just moves them emotionally. Um that's my my biggest thing right now is like where can we can we like peak our hands through the, the, you know, the veil of like this crazy life we're all living and like create a little portal for, uh, those that are, are ready to have a different kind of experience and then give them the space to do that and not be judgy or come on, or, you know, creating so much commotion around them that they still feel that they can't do that. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it, it boils down to, and this is a really personal example, but um, there are times where I used to have so much, you know, happening in my head and also so much going on with like, you know, there would be people in the house or there would be um, events going on that were in and out. And I would have to crawl into my closet and get under the you know, hanging clothes and lay there with a pillow over both my ears like this in order to find a calm like space because there was no room in the house that was free of commotion. And you know that's nobody's fault. I participated in creating your, that own, well.
0: your own your own sensory deprivation chamber as it
2: yes, says. right. And, you know, those are extreme cases where it's like upsetting and a person has to go do that. But, um, you know, I want to know that the world's environments that we're creating, whether it's an office space where people, you know, those employers are really excited for those employees to get back to work. Right. And not be just doing it at home, but come to the office, have culture. Right. All these things. But if you don't create an environment where they can. Also chill out there and maybe have a couch to sit on that isn't, you know, some very uber modern and swanky looking thing that's in the middle of an open room where everybody's staring at them. I mean, this is not smart design. We have to, we have to get honest about the fact that people like nooks. They sometimes like quiet spaces. They sometimes need a place that has a door where they can actually do the good work. Um, you know, the, the movement of folks working from home is no surprise to me because, you know, people create the kind of setting they need. And so right.
0: anyway. My, my, my wife alf, often complains about the fact that she works in cubicle world.
2: Oh, where there is right. no
0: privacy, where you can't get away, oh. where you can't block out the voices and, and all the other interruptions and, and, uh, yeah. and kind of taking place in the environment. Hey, yes. Dave, I... I hate to do this. Um, I hate because, you know. Oh, boy,
2: here me, we I go. Wanted to,
0: I wanted to ask you about your softball playing. I wanted to go <laughs> even more into the book. I wanted to talk about your various public art installations around the town, oh, yeah. your, your Sparks in the City program that you started, the Destination Cleveland has now taken over. Uh, do we need to do a, a part two at some point? You know, oh, yes. I, I think yeah. so. <laughs> we, we, okay, we were, we were instructed that the uh, you know the, the the best protocol when it comes to these crowdcasts or podcasts is to try to keep them to sixty minutes. But it's uh, it was simply impossible with right. you, right?
2: Because we get real chatty. Uh, Sorry, not, I know, and we but, went no, over.
0: Ch- 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 oh, chatty, with inconsequential fine. things are being stated. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you you have. um. Clearly laid out for us a a plan moving forward in the future in terms of what we should do with our own lives to become more mentally and emotionally and physically healthy. What we need to do to in in terms of environment, uh, the built environment and the general environment in terms of interactions and things that need to to happen and be in place so that. Um, uh, we can have more fulfilling and rewarding and peaceful lives. So,
2: yeah, so
1: this is this has been just an extraordinary colloquy and this, that we've had. and this and this con and this conversation demonstrated all that. It's about engagement.
2: Yeah, well, yeah. Three of us
1: are very engaged, and that's what it's about. Engagement. Mm-hmm. That's what being mm-hmm. in the moment is all about. Mm-hmm. And and we did that. We showed it. We demonstrated. Well,
2: I appreciate you know your audience jumping in. And Jack, I'm so glad you jumped on tonight and posted those questions. It's nice to see your name pop by. It's funny how, you know, when you look at ways that even if the public were to be able to weigh in on some of this, they don't necessarily have to know the science behind it or they don't have to know uh, the public policy reasons why certain things are the way they are. But If you gave them parameters for like, what makes you feel good? What do you, you know, how, what's your favorite comfortable chair? What's your, you know, the real basic stuff. I feel like we could kind of get back to, you know, this is where good design and good designers, um, you know, they, those are the folks in the world that I feel like, you know, are really helping because they too care and they do think about and they get feedback, very very real feedback on you know the good ones do it anyway but i'm happy to come back anytime you guys want
1: well you'll be back and i gotta tell you this is a little bit of a journey back to me because jack's on here and you are too yeah and we were all together uh how many years ago 15 uh 37 years ago yeah that goes back 37 years so Right. uh Walking in the hallways at West Middle School.
2: <laughs> right. I still wonder about, um, you know, I, I was thinking about this the other day. We used to paint the ceiling tiles, right? Yes. We in eighth yes. grade. And I had a vivid memory of the one that I painted. And I thought, I wonder if they still do that anymore. It's such a great way to leave a little mark as an eighth grader to go off to high school. But you got to paint a tile. And
1: I forgot about it. Some of the kids wanted, had, had those ceiling tiles installed in my office
2: oh how cool
1: yeah it was it was That's great neat. and i love what a, i felt very honored about yeah that. I bet. Uh, it, it was such a cool thing uh in fact i wanted to take mine with me but they wouldn't let me <laughs> <laughs> i'll bet you they're still there
2: they might what be you- i mean they might have renovated by now but Well, they
1: they did, but I think they tried to preserve the ceiling tile. That was such a neat concept.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, without being able to do, you know, other things on walls, it was like useful. So, yeah, Yeah. clever,
0: wonderful concept. Um. Well, another successful Crowdcast uh, conversation, spark, uh, spark conversation. um, I believe on June. 29th will be our next crowdcast, and we will have as our guests a rather remarkable a gentleman who's certainly making an important social impact in Northeast Ohio. Brandon Trokowski of um, Edwin's uh, Restaurant and the Edwin's Leadership Institute. And uh, matter of fact, Brandon, who's of Polish descent, uh, was recently in Poland tending to the needs of refugees. Um, oh. Uh, from Ukraine. And um, so we're going to get a chance to talk to him about the extraordinary things he's doing with re-entering citizens at Edwin's and through the Edwin's Leadership Institute and also get a chance to chat with him about what he personally observed firsthand while he was uh, providing aid to Ukrainian refugees in Poland. So that should and, be an interesting conversation, I think.
1: Our, for those, for those of you unfamiliar, not familiar with Brandon Kristowski, what he does is he has a program training and re-entering uh, convicted felons back into society through teaching them the restaurant business and culinary his, art. Culinary mm-hmm. art and his his reach is really become international uh he's getting ready to open up a center in brooklyn new york i don't know if you're aware of that awesome. uh, and and you can watch him on uh there's been a few pbs documentaries i believe he's done a ted talk so very dynamic individual as, as a matter of
0: fact if memory serves me correctly i think one of his documentaries was up either for an emmy or an oscar yes award. yes i believe so, Fantastic. Yeah, so. Of course, we have our own Emmy winner right here, Susie <laughs> yeah,
2: It was just a pilot. I'm so grateful for it, but yeah. Well, you guys, what a joy! Thank you for this time tonight. Thank you. No,
1: thank I really we'll thank you. We'll do it again.
2: Okay, sounds. I've learned good. a lot
0: from you in just this past sixty minutes. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to take my Type A personality and apply some of the principles that you espoused.
1: Slow to That's slow as smooth. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast, slow. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> I like that phrase. All right, you guys. Namaste. We'll see you later.
1: Take care. Good night. Bye-bye. Good night, Bye-bye. everybody.